0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Here we go, Sherry. One,
1: two, three, Let Sherry baby rock your soul. She's gonna help you break the mold. She's super
0: magic, truth be told. got, got lots and lots of musical good. Visuality, conviviality, sexuality, quality time on the air, quality time on the air, quality time on the air, with Sherry, cause and effect. Hi everyone, my name is Jenna Dosh, and I am a bisexual Korean-American music director. Uh, my first crossed paths with Sherry in 2016 when I was accompanying classes at NYU Steinhardt and magical Sherry came in and taught for a week. And I was like, who is this amazing person? Um, and then little, you know, time went on and our paths have crossed again, which, um, I'm so grateful for. I'm so thankful for. And, uh, I've recently contributed to Sherry's, um, first revised second edition of Rock the Audition. I have a little excerpt in there and I'm so excited to um, you know, be a part of the Rock the Audition team and I'm s- beginning a series of conversations between artists with different backgrounds from the AAPI community to address just what's been going on lately. Um, oh! <laughs> And um, I also contributed to uh, giving Sherry some feedback on her wonderful Broadway on Demand programs. So it's, so, it's been so great to reconnect with Sherry in this time and um, all the great things that are coming from that, like today. And yeah, thanks, Sherry. I would like to introduce Rachel
1: Forbes. Hi. Hi. So happy to be here. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be here, Jenna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course.
0: Thanks for coming.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So my name is Rachel Forbes, and I use the pronouns she and her, and I am a therapist in New Haven, Connecticut. And quite frankly, Sherry kind of stumbled upon me, I am assuming, on Psychology Today. And here I am. I'm a Korean-American adoptee as well. And I'm so happy to be here. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah. That's so cool that um,
1: you're also Korean adoptee. I feel like we have a lot in common just from there. It's amazing. I was so enthused to hear that you are also a transracial adoptee because I think that our community is also a little bit niche in and of itself. So I think that at least from my perspective, I feel like my perspective in regards to what's going on in the Asian community is a little bit unique because of that.
0: Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, It's, it's, it's complicated because we're not necessarily a part of the Asian community being, being adopted, but we also, it's, it's about fitting in. I feel like finding that place, Mm -hmm. um, which is just a whole, a whole um, other layer on top of what's going on. A process
1: which whew, it's as, a lot yeah, yeah it's a lot yeah and I do agree with you I love when you had said it's an added there's an added layer mm-hmm. um, because I think it's sort of this lifelong journey for adoptees particularly to find and feel a sense of belonging because yes. especially as transracial adoptees I'm not sure if you can speak to this, but certainly I'm speaking for myself when I say I feel like I have had a foot in both worlds. So I also grew up in a white Jewish community, mm-hmm. um, and I went to sort of an all, all Jewish, all white school. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been—I mean, I was raised in a very predominantly affluent white community, being one of the only people of color, and particularly only, only Asians. Um, and so I have this cultural identity with Judaism, with the white community, with white culture, mm-hmm. while also, of course, my roots, my biological roots are so clear aesthetically. And so outside of my community, my Asian-ness, my Koreanness, is made so apparent to me. And I'm even having to take a moment to be like, oh, yeah, I am Korean. I am Asian, right? Because culturally, I'm so immersed in, you know, my Jewishness, right? So it gets complex where we have this foot in both worlds, but neither in which we fully, fully belong or I Belong, yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't tell you how much I relate to you saying that. Um, I also um was adopted from Korea at uh, 9 months old to a tiny little town in northwestern Wisconsin um a completely white community i was the only person of color and yeah it's it's such a strange feeling being in that com- being a part of that community but also not because you don't fit in just by the, necessarily by the way you look, but everyone surrounding you with the way you're brought up. Yeah, it's, I remember um, as, as a kid looking in the mirror sometimes and being like, oh, I, I looked, I look different than everyone, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, ne- I never felt that way. Right. Um, because of, because of the community I was, I was raised in.
1: Right. And it speaks so much to how, nurture plays such a huge role. Mm-hmm. But then also there are all these other layers of how we understand each other, how we see each other racially and how that's actually a thing, right? Which I think that <laughs> yeah. um, the community has been so vocal about, I mean, especially amidst all of these anti-Asian hate crimes that, you know, race is seen, race mm-hmm. race plays a role in how we treat each other um, because of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And so I too have felt also this like element of in this white Jewish community of still feeling othered, even though I was also included. Right. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've experienced this, but people would say to me, Oh, Rachel, like you're not really Asian. Right. Or, Oh, you know, I forget that you're Asian, which kind of feels like an erasure of this really important part of my identity. But I also could relate to what they were saying because none of my cultural self was connected to my Korean hood. So it's sort of this, you are one of us, but also not mm-hmm. one of them, which is sort of, there's still this then divide in that conversation in and of itself, right? Absolutely,
0: yes. I um, was referred to as either a Twinkie or a banana, how <sighs> you may be golden or yellow, they would say, on the outside, but you're white on the inside. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it was... Yeah, it, there's so many. I feel like there are a lot of things that I'm now reflecting on, from uh, grade school through high school, realizing that, um, you
1: know, these microaggressions are really are really stick with you. Yeah, they're so harmful, and in this really insidious way because it's usually dismissed as, oh, you know, we were just joking, right? Exactly. Um, when in fact, what you're the message that you're actually sending is that you are not actually one of us, you don't fully belong, you are other. And not only are you other, but you are other in this sort of not so friendly way. Right. Um, And so that is understandably hurtful. Nobody wants to be ostracized, just like no. that's human nature, right? It's so it's painful. And when they add up, it's, you know, it becomes something much larger, and the more it gets dismissed, the more it sort of feels like, oh, well, I shouldn't feel this way. So there's an added layer of guilt or shame. Then right. we're not we're not given permission to even grieve that loss, right? So it's complicated and it's painful.
0: It is. It's very complicated.
1: Yeah. And I think too, I um one thing too that comes up in just thinking about early childhood and what it was like growing up in a predominantly white community as the only Asian specifically at my Jewish day school, maybe not the only Asian there were maybe was maybe one other family um, with children of color who were also adopted. Mm. And I just remember feeling like, you know, all of these, all of these jokes that were made, Oh, Oh, so do you do nails or do you, you know, do you work? Does your family work at a laundromat or you know, oh, you must love dumplings or you must like, you know, all of these assumptions. You're were- so good at math. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. That were just, they were playful in their minds, but it was so hurtful in this other stereotyping way for me. But also with adoption, with adoption as an adoptee, it's mm-hmm. a little bit complicated because none of that makes any cultural sense to me, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
1: So, Jenna, I'm also curious about what it was like for you being in school, in elementary school, middle school. What was that like for you? Sure. So, elementary school and middle school,
0: my town was so small, I tell you, when my graduating class was, I think, 22, Mm -hmm. just tiny. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember in elementary school that there was one girl who at recess would always make fun of my eyes which to me um my eyes didn't look the way that they were mocked towards me so Mm. I always found that very very confusing what (laughs) would they say um they would say that my eyes were sideways Mm. um and I would just be like no they're not they're they're brown and they're big and round mhm mhm um and i'm thinking in high school i i didn't i didn't really think much about my identity as a as a korean person honestly mm-hmm. in school
1: mm-hmm. much
0: um i went and did my undergrad at a small liberal arts program. It's called Luther College in Northeastern Iowa, which is also a very tiny town. Um, And I majored in piano performance with my focus of accompanying the opera students. Um, Luther's a very big opera classical program, which, you know, opera is very white centric. So the music department all around me was very white. Once again, Mm -hmm. I had um, a couple other Asian friends that were also pianists. So in undergrad, the joke kind of was, um, oh, if you're Asian, then you play piano and you're really good at it. Mm. And I'd always think, yeah, I am really good at it, but it doesn't, it's not because I was not because born in you're Korea. Asian. <laughs> <laughs> My mom started me in lessons when I was 3 and it was just something I really connected to. Um so that was my undergrad experience and I did my master's program in Southern Illinois in Carbondale, Illinois, mm-hmm. which is like 6 hours south of Chicago. Um a very interesting part of the country. It's not really Midwestern. It's not the South, but people have Confederate flags there. Mm. It's a very, it's a confusing part of the country, honestly. (laughs) Um, And there I studied collaborative piano, um, accompanying for musical theater. And again, like a lot of BFA programs, they are pretty white centric. Um, So I actually, I haven't, really thought about or explored my racial identity actually until, um, the coronavirus started. Mm. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Meaning,
1: can you say a little more about that? What about coronavirus starting inspired you to be a little bit more exploratory?
0: Sure. So once the coronavirus started and, the president who should not be named <laughs> was <laughs> referring to the pandemic as other words that I'm, I'm not going to say because I don't want to, um, you know, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need that power. Um, once that rhetoric was established, mm. um, I started experiencing verbal harassment. Um, um, I was living in New York city at the time and you know, people would tell me go back to China as I'm like in a mask, trying to deliver a a box to like the post office to like my mom or something. Uh, people would spit at me. It got to a point where I did not leave my apartment for, for like a month. And I actually wasn't in, I wasn't previously in therapy, but um, I have been before. But once all that started happening, I revisited therapy. And one thing that I realized was um, I am an Asian American. I'm Korean. And that's how the majority of people see me if they do not know me. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's something I never thought about before growing up in my tiny white town, going to college in a tiny white town. um, Is that when people view me on the street, they're like, there is an Asian woman. Mm -hmm. That thought honestly hadn't really ever occurred to me, which Mm -hmm. I do realize is is a bit of, is a form of privilege in itself that I was, you know, brought up with a white family in a white community. And I do recognize, I do recognize that. Um, but the joyful part of my discovery of, um, you know, learning more about not only who I am, but where I came from is I have started, you know, reading more books about about our culture, and mm-hmm. I celebrated my first Korean Thanksgiving and my first Lunar New Year this past year, and mm-hmm. you know, cook special dishes. And you know, it's really it's really exciting, and yeah. I'm I'm happy that even at 31, which feels like it's a little late to figure this out, that I'm, you know, learning these things and learning more about myself and starting new traditions that that I feel really good
1: about and I'm proud of. Yeah. In, in the adoption community, we call that coming out of the fog. Have you heard of this terminology? No, please tell me more. Yeah. So what it just speaks to is that, I mean, the typical story with an adoption is, oh, you're so lucky. This is such a great, wonderful opportunity. You should be so grateful that you've been afforded this better life. But what doesn't get really talked about in the adoption community is the inherent trauma that comes along with adoption um, and how there's a huge loss of a first family and a first culture and a first you know, biological roots that sort of gets glazed over in this new life that is supposedly better greater something that we should just be so so grateful for which i'm not discounting the privilege the warmth the love the the wonderful things that come through adoption Mm -hmm. but when i say coming out of the fog what they're talking about too is you know that primal wound of losing your birth family your birth mother specifically um that sort of disruption of attachment and also how that plays a role in how we have relationships with others in our later life. Um, Also, in talking about this sort of erasure of our biological, cultural identity that we you know, a lot of adoptive families are told, well, welcome this child into your own family. They're now one of yours, which in that is the intention is so loving, but there tends to also then be, okay, so I'm going to now immerse you into, for example, in my case, right? My Jewish Mm -hmm. community or my, you know, X, Y, or Z community. But in that we lose sight or connection to our Cultural, biological roots, and so I too, Jenna, very much relate to just now in my you know 30s, rediscovering, reconnecting with my Korean roots, and it feels so so powerful, so important, and so beautiful. But I think what what we also talk about in the adoption community is. Coming out of the fog is such an individual process. There is such a spectrum of how long that will take. At what point in time will you come out of the fog? How, you know, how quickly that happens. And quite honestly, even if that happens in a lifetime, because it doesn't always happen in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would challenge what you said in just saying it really, there's no right or wrong about when you get it and or when you start to reconnect.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it,
1: yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's coming out of the fog.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. Thank you for teaching me that. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: Happy to share. <laughs> it's so cool. Right. But I mean, I think a lot of adoptees can really relate to that Speci- also particularly transracial adoptees um, in terms of just reconnecting to cultural roots. I mean, I just, the other day got mixed, a mix to make pajan, right. To make the Korean scallion pancakes. Oh, cool.
0: Yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah. I also one thing that you had mentioned Jenna that I Mm want to just respond to because I feel like it's important to insert this here for any listeners who might benefit from this information Mm -hmm. Um, but Jenna you had mentioned that in elementary school someone was particularly commenting on your eyes which I definitely can relate to and I'm sure most Asians can relate to in growing up in the United States Um, but actually have you heard of Joanna Ho? Um, She's an author Mm who The
0: eyes that can kiss that kiss yes! in the
1: corners. Yes, <laughs> she wrote this gorgeous children's book, and so I just want to share this with anyone who's listening. Joanna Ho wrote this beautiful book called "Eyes That Kiss in the Corners," mm-hmm. and it just it it welcomes beauty and and just Asian beauty, and it's su- it really brought me to tears. And I, I read it to my daughter, and it has shifted my world. So thank you, Johanna Ho. Johanna Ho. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Rachel, I'd love
0: to hear more about your experience um, as a
1: therapist, especially in this current climate. Yeah. Um, so firstly, definitely there is a huge need in the mental health industry for clinicians of color. That is absolutely lacking. We, I, thankfully since the pandemic specifically since um, the black lives matter movement, um, I have become more familiar with, with platforms and directories that therapist directories that are, that specifically cater to clients of color. So there's like clinicians of color, there's Ayana therapy, Um, I cannot recall the other ones, but I know that if you type in a quick Google search, um, there are other directories that are available that specifically cater to clients of color, which I think is phenomenal because the need is definitely there. So what I've also noticed in my own practice is There is a huge portion of my clients now that are Asian women specifically who have sought me out because I'm Asian, which then, of course, I have this disclaimer that says, yes, I am Asian. I can speak to the Asian American experience and what it's like to be perceived as Asian. But just so you know, I am not culturally Korean. I am not as familiar with Korean culture, nor East Asian culture. um, So I cannot speak to what that experience is like. Um, Though I am definitely learning more and more and becoming more and more educated about, I mean, even through my clients, but in my own research about East Asian culture, specifically Korean culture, so that I can feel a little bit more connected and, of course, cater to my clients a little bit better. Um, But I think, too, that, you know, it has been eye-opening for me and sort of this reminder for me that, yeah, I... As a transracial adoptee in a predominantly white community, I have felt a little bit like an island. Um, and specifically, you know, with all of these more overt conversations about race, uh, racial injustice, and systemic oppression, I've had some really difficult conversations with people in my own inner circle within my own community. Um, and I've had somebody in the community, like in a in an intentionally joking way, but you know, look me in the eye in this group setting and say, Chinese virus. And I mean, everyone paused, looked at me and waited for my reaction in this knowing that what you just said was offensive. Similar to you, Jenna, I too have, you know, really thought a little bit more deeply about how I feel how I feel within my own community, within my own circle, and recognizing that my lived experience as being aesthetically Asian is oftentimes not recognized or seen because I've been so included culturally in my community that I've kind of had to explain to even people who know me very well um, what it's like. And that has actually been really exhausting, really excruciating, and that has really been painful for me, um, which I have worked through in therapy, thank- thankfully. <laughs> um, but yeah, it has been quite a journey and it has been definitely difficult and more difficult, but also awakening um, during the pandemic. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. That reminds me of... Um... Actually, a book I just started reading. Have you read or heard of All You Can Ever Know? I have not,
1: but I'd love to read um, it now. Tell me more.
0: <laughs> it's a book by uh, Rachel Chung is her name. Mm-hmm. And she's also a Korean adoptee. And um, I've, I've only just recently started the book. But in the beginning, she talks about um, talking to her parents now about experiences she's had as a child that were um, bullying or racially insensitive and how hard it is coming to these people that have shown you love and that you love, but they, but they don't necessarily understand.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that gets, that's sort of like you're, you're stuck in a pretty tough place, right? Where, Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel grateful my adoptive parents are actually and have been so open minded, um, so liberal in their thought process and so willing and able to engage in these conversations with me, um, for which I feel really grateful. But like, I mean, even in my friend circle, my extended family circle, I have been met with just not understanding and not with any malicious intent, but just purely in being white, right, right, not A, having to think about Mm -hmm. it, not experiencing what that's like. Um, And so trying to convey what that feels like, it's it's hard to put into words. It's hard to put into words. Yeah. How about for you, Jenna? Does it feel, have you kind of met that within your own circle or within your family or...
0: I have within, within the past year, um, my parents too have been, uh, really wonderful and, and supportive. Um, I actually speak the most, I think about everything I'm discovering about myself with my sister Mm -hmm. who is so excited for me. Uh, my sister is the biological daughter of my parents and, um, They are 30, oh my gosh, embarrassing. They're 35. They're a few years older than me. Um, And yeah, my sister has been so excited for me and so supportive about um, celebrating who I am and has sent me um, like Venmos to celebrate Lunar New Year, which is just so sweet. And that's been really great. But I have actually had more trouble um speaking with with close friends because the majority the majority of my friends are white and while I do know that they sympathize with things that have happened to me especially this this past year and I know they care for me um the level of understanding is is just not always
1: there because I don't, I don't know if it can be, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I always say, and this sounds so silly, but you know, you just don't know what you don't know. Right. And that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that what is important here is the willingness to get to know, um, the willingness to unlearn, to be conscious of racial bias, um, and also starting really young. So one thing, too, that I've really appreciated and also kind of circling back to the Eyes That Kiss in the Corners book is mm-hmm. throughout the Black Lives Matter protests I, and, you know, just raising my own consciousness, my own awareness, learning, self-educating and still self-educating um, mm-hmm. is that, you know, recognizing that kids pick up on this so early on. And I mean, I know from my own experience, I totally internalized this belief that, like, I was not as beautiful and that I wish I had blue eyes and blonde hair like everybody else around me and like the people I saw on TV, right?
0: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This is the... That's one of the biggest discoveries I've made. Um, One of my other friends is, is Filipino. And we both were just shocked that when we were kids, we were like, we wish that we were had blonde hair and that we had blue eyes and we were pretty. Mm -hmm. Equating that
1: with beauty, right? That this internalized hate towards how we look because we were, we we knew we were other, we were different. We were not included in the beauty standard. And so Mm -hmm. I think too, that it's also teaching children in, and exposing children to racial diversity early on, sort of normalizing that, like, our world is harmoniously, could be harmoniously and, like, beautiful, harmoniously beautiful um, with all of the diversity, right? But, I mean, I actually f- have felt so grateful because there ha- I have felt like there's been an increase, at least somewhat, slightly, um, in animated, you know, shows and yes. movies with female mm-hmm. protagonists and also females of color and of Asian yes. origin right so that I have been grateful for my daughter to be exposed to um yeah yeah
0: yes I totally agree um two that recently come to mind are Over the Moon yes! on Netflix oh, so <laughs> and then uh my wife and I just watched oh. Ryan the Last Dragon oh, okay. which is Amazing. amazing yes yeah amazing and it's so cool to see things like that happening now like for your daughter and for other children of color to see people that look like them on the screens yes. yes i i had a moment um when i saw crazy rich asians in the theater where I was crying and I was like, why am I crying? And I and I realized that I've I've never been to a movie and seen everyone else in the movie, you know, people who look more like me. Yeah. I'd never experienced that before. So <sighs> meaningful yeah, all the the recent work and art that's com- that's coming out of everything, I think is is really great. It's powerful. Much needed.
1: It is powerful. Yeah. So
0: the Asian representation in our community, first off, from uh, I'm a music director and pianist. So from a creative team standpoint, I have never worked with another Asian director, music director, choreographer, scenic designer, wow. costume designer, technician, anything. Wow. I've never within... Uh, creative team or crew I've, I've never worked with another Asian person before which is is horrible that's terrible mm-hmm. um after uh one thing it, within our industry after uh, since the Black Lives Matter movement uh there was a letter that came out in June oh my gosh what's it called it was I think BIPOC demands for white theater. Is that right, Cherry? Uh, the We See You? Yes, We See You white theater. White, white American theater. White American theater, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we see we see, yes. we see you. We see you, yes. Yeah. Um, in June, We See You white American theater, which was um, basically a list of demands of how things need to change. And uh, one of the first things I remember reading uh, was for Broadway and commercial theater that 50% of cast creative crews, 50% of everyone involved uh, must be BIPOC. And that's after reading that, that's when I realized that not only have I never worked with another Asian person um, on a creative team I have never been a part of a creative team with another person of color Wow Wow and I have music directed shows all around the Midwest New York Connecticut I've gone out west I've done shows Boulder like everywhere I've been I've never been on a creative team with another person of color Wow. Wow. So that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that needs that needs to change. Uh,
1: I'm dipping in because I'd also like to say just to jump in um that I think that no one knows how to write for Asian people because they shouldn't be. Mm. <laughs> Asian people should be writing for Asian people. And if somebody Mm -hmm. decides to do a show and they're white, that is about the Asian culture, they need to have an entirely Asian team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Period. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that. That makes so much sense. And I think like far too often, right. We see that. I really appreciate that Sherry, because I think too, that far too often. And I mean, you see historically that, um, you know, And I'm thinking even of like Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? Where you have people who are white playing an Asian person, right? But also people who are white um, orchestrating, navigating, managing Asian experience when you don't have that experience, right? And I'm also saying this too with this little disclaimer here for me is that I too, even on this podcast, while I am aesthetically Asian and I have Korean roots, I also cannot speak to you know, the Asian experience in the United States, growing up in a family who has experienced generational trauma and racial trauma through generations living in the United States. Um, So I think that that's important to name. So thank you, Sherry. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that.
0: Asian Americans are definitely kind of pigeonholed, I'd say, as, as actors, definitely with some of the roles and opportunities, I guess, that are afforded to them, uh, early works or the earliest, I guess, Asian representation in musical theater would, you know, consist of the King and I and let's see what else, uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is newer, but, uh, the King and I and Miss Saigon are two that come to mind where Asian, Asian people are depicted as as weak, or in the King and I, they're savages referred to as savages, and shows shows like this are not giving Asian actors the correct opportunity to mm. showcase who they are and tell our, our stories. And like The King and I and Miss Saigon, those aren't our stories. They're stories about us, told by, written and told
1: by by white Mm men.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: What you're talking about, Jenna, is sort of this like Eurocentric perspective, or or like this. um, Yes this white perspective, I think it's different from the model minority because from this from what you're talking about, Jenna, this perspective is in a an, a demeaning kind of way, right in this um, right very you are less than kind of way and you are different in a negative way, whereas the model mm. minority, for example, which is you know so frequently assumed in the United States, um, we have this weird purgatory state where we are, um, we're not exactly in the dominant white community and we're not as privileged as a white person, but we are assumed to have it all in all other regards, right? We are more quote unquote civilized. We are mo- more, um, refined in this way. And we are academically achieving successful, financially mm-hmm. successful, um, And so this this term, model minority, speaks to, oh, see, all other communities of color should be just like the Asian community. Also, assuming that we are a monolith, which we are not, I actually read in an article that um, the Asian community has the greatest disparity financially than any other um, community where, you know, you have very, very wealthy Asian community and then also some of the most impoverished citizens are also Asian. So um, the assumption that we're a monolith, that we're all these very successful, financially successful people. Um, and that, of course, I think you mentioned earlier, Jenna, that we're all like great at math, right? That we excel in the sciences, right? And math. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what we're also doing with the model minority term is we're also continuing to oppress other communities of color specifically black and brown communities mm-hmm. right in saying yes. go ahead Jenna. yeah
0: yeah it drives a wedge between mm-hmm. the com- between minority communities yeah yeah but if you could be like them then you can rise to success mm-hmm. and you know we as asians we've faced discrimination but we haven't um the you know systematic dehumanization and racism that black and brown people have faced Mm -hmm. um is is not something that we've experienced and it is i do think our responsibility with noting the the model minority myth is to speak out about it and say that's not okay Mm -hmm. and we're
1: not we're not we're not white Mm -hmm. and And also like to the white community, we see what you're doing. When you call us the model minority, you are, Mm. you are further oppressing black and Brown communities and all other communities of color that are not Asian by saying, if you could only be like them, because what you're saying is that inherently you are less than right. And so it is just further oppressive. And it, as you said, creates this further divide and this wedge, and it still holds whiteness to this superior standard, right? It's saying yes, yeah. It's still <laughs> saying that if if you could be more like the Asians, then you could be more like us, which just perpetuates white supremacy. Um, yeah. So I do agree. With when you. really, go
0: ahead. Yes, when really we're we're more tolerated instead of accepted. Mm-hmm. I think
1: absolutely absolutely we're still not included fully right it's just you're what we want all communities of color to be like (laughs) (laughs)
0: yes
1: which is equally harmful um Mm -hmm. but i do i do appreciate what you had said jenna is that there is sort of this positioning of privilege um in being an asian american um, in which we do not experience the same kind of oppression um as black, indigenous, or 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 any brown person, right? In in the community, that it is mm-hmm. it is different. It also though is under the same umbrella of white supremacy, which I, I love the idea that this is a time in which we should band together and support and uplift each other. Um,
0: absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. So for me, I I think that education is really, really important and something that I actually have a lot of gratitude for social, you know, for social media in this regard, because the incredible access we have to information and education and activists who are so willing to share their work openly on the internet is incredible. I have learned so much since, um, BLM this last summer. And I, I think that, you know, continuing to raise awareness, continuing to be vocal, continuing to have these conversations on these platforms. So thank you so much, Sherry, for that, um, is really crucial and, and also starting young, right? So for this to be, you know, included in schools, meaning having children's books that include Mm -hmm. Asians, um, in their stories, right. And, and including Asian perspective, right. Asian contributions to the United States. And I think Also, for a will, I mean, I think what's also crucial in any of this is a willingness to be critically thoughtful, right? So to be a little bit more conscious about your own bias, the own, you know, the things that you have learned, um, just to be a little bit more introspective. And I'm hoping that, you know, with all of this education, all of this new information, we can take a step back and be a little bit more self-reflective. Um, So I would say definitely education, connecting to community um, and introspection for me feel really key in all of this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Awareness and conversation is where it's at. And I totally agree with you about um, the power of social media. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have learned so much just on Instagram. Uh There are so many amazing activists who, who make gorgeous illustrations and slides with, with really important information. Uh And it's easier now more than ever to just add something to your story or send as a DM to send an article as a DM to, to a friend to read. Uh And I feel like, um, in the in the time where social media can be can be challenging, it can also be great for great
1: resources for being aware and for activism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like we said earlier, right? We don't know what we don't know. And so when we do have that information, we then have sort of a choice. Am I gonna be open to this information? Am I willing to be critically thoughtful about things that I have learned and maybe how I have contributed to this harm? Um, What are some ways in which I can contribute to the change for it to be more inclusive and loving? Um, Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that's amazing, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us here on Cause and Effect. And thank you, Brittany Bigelow and the Broadway Podcast Network for
1: having us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a joy talking to you, Jenna. Thank you. You as well. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Jenna. (laughs) Thanks,
0: Sherry.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Sherry Sanders. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause and Effect. Cause and Effect is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dori Berenstein and Alan Seals, edited by Kyle Moore, and music by Courtney Bassett and Andrew Swackhammer of Starbird and the Phoenix. Special thanks to Stephen Farizy. Thank you. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream. You should also follow me on Instagram, (laughs) at rocktheaudition. And to learn more, visit bpn.fm backslash cause and effect. Peace.